Open your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We spent about nine months working through Paul's letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians. And now we have the joy of carrying that study forward into the second letter of Thessalonians. And it only makes sense for us to do this because of how closely closely related these books are. They're obviously written by the same author and to the same group of recipients, but also sharing many of the same themes and written very closely to the same time, perhaps really separated by just a few months uh, in, their, in their composition. It's still, along with 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians is still one of the earliest New Testament books that's known, one of the earliest Christian documents that we have, probably written around 50 or 51 uh, AD. And we know that it was written as well from the city of Corinth, where uh, Paul says in his opening line that he and Silas and Timothy were together. That's the only place we know that they were ever in the same place after he left Thessalonica. So, so we can have some level of confidence that during that time frame, uh, in Acts 18, when he was in Corinth, he wrote both of these letters And it helps us to place all of that together and helps us to understand that these things uh, came right on the heels of each other and that as Paul had written and sent off his first letter to them at the hands of Timothy, it seems, now Timothy has returned and he has given a report that not only they had received the letter and received it in, uh, no doubt, uh, with encouragement and with joy, But not only uh, had they received it, he had stayed around and and spent time in fellowship with them, observed their life. He was able to come back and tell Paul a little bit of what was going on among the church and how they were growing spiritually, how they were responding, as well as maybe even some questions that might still be on their mind. This close uh, connection in time frame is reflected then uh, in... Uh, the similar kind of topics that were that were on their minds and were active in the church. There's a lot of discussion uh, in these books about what the Christian life ought to look like in this passing age. There's a lot of discussion about eschatological issues, uh, whereas in 1 Thessalonians it might have been a smaller portion of the book. When you get to the book of 2 Thessalonians, it is prominent covering really two of the first uh, of two of the three chapters the first two largely dealing with eschatology and it was particularly acute because someone in the intervening time had written another letter to the Thessalonian church and had written it as though it was from the apostle Paul it was a pseudo letter and it made all kinds of claims that the day of the Lord had already arrived and had sent uh, all kinds of confusion in the church. And so Paul has to take time in Second Thessalonians to explain why that cannot be, why that's an impossibility. And so it comes to us really with a lot of detail in understanding eschatology in the day of the Lord, a focus on what is the details of the tribulation, the Antichrist, and all those, all those other things. But that's not the extent of his eschatological focus. There's, there's also, in chapter 1, uh, a lot of discussion about what you might call individual 
eschatology. Uh, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to you specifically in the end? There's a lot of discussion about, about uh, vindication for those who believe and judgment for those who don't believe. And so throughout all these sections, Paul is, is downloading on us a rich, rich section of understanding about the end times, but also woven into it so much of the practical realities of how that ought to impact you and me on a daily basis. There's an interweaving, if you will, of, of exhortation and practical application for life uh, as it relates to these issues. Now, this is especially true in the opening chapter of 2 Thessalonians, as Paul opens with a greeting that formally begins, you might say, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, but, but beginning in verse 3, Paul, uh, Paul launches into, as he normally does, a long statement of thanksgiving, but is one complete sentence that goes from verse 3 all the way down to verse 12. There's only one main verb in the entire section there. That is the idea in verse 3. We ought to give thanks. And, um, and then Paul sort of unfolds that line of thinking in a stratified fashion for us. And we're going to take time over the next couple of weeks to peel away, if you will, the layers of that as Paul unfolds it for us, or you might even say build on a kind of a pyramid there, uh, moving up level by level as Paul moves from their faith and their love and their perseverance to God's future judgment to the righteousness of God and his eternal destruction of those who refuse to believe, and then finally circling back around at the end of the chapter to his thanksgiving and to their life. And he connects all of this together in one long sentence with all these conjunctions and subordinate clauses, but really demonstrating to us how for the Apostle Paul, his theology, even in things like eschatology, are intimately woven into his understanding of the Christian life. Before we look at that, let me just briefly read to you. I'm not going to read the entire a chapter this morning, but I just want to read to you the opening verses and the ones that will be our focus for this morning. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Paul opens here with this sort of typical greeting that you would see in any other first century Letter. They always began by stating their name and then stating the recipients because these were delivered in scrolls. You know, it wasn't like a modern letter where you can quickly scan to the bottom to see who's writing the letter. So they would open up, as he does here, Paul, Sil- uh, Paul Silvanus, and Timothy, uh, who were the workers who had been active in Thessalonica. Now they were together in Corinth. And he doesn't at this point, feel the need to give any titles like he will later on in his letters. This is still very early in the life of the church, still very early in his own ministry. 
He hadn't gotten to the place where people were seriously questioning his apostleship, so he doesn't even need to announce himself as an apostle. He just gives his name with these fellow workers, and then he states the letter is addressed to the church at Thessalonica. All those things would be similar to what you find in other letters. But then he begins to do what is unique, really, in the first century and among Christians. He begins to add these elaborations he begins, if you will, he begins to, to take what are the typical forms of expression and fill it with their theology. This is what Christians did. This is the, their creativity, if you will, the way that they transformed everyday life just by, just by the way that they greeted one another. And so they're not just the church at Thessalonica. They're the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even here, he's filling in with the thoughts that were filling his mind, that this was a church which thoroughly belonged to God and was thoroughly the product of him. A church which God owned and the church which God was producing, if you will. And he adds a blessing, again, filled with his theology and reflecting all that, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Some might call that redundancy, But it really wasn't superfluous for Paul. He inserted God again as the source of all grace and all peace and all blessing in general. This was actually part of his message. This was already reflecting what he wanted to communicate to them. The sovereignty of God and his providence, his provision over their lives, even in the midst of their afflictions. And so even as he begins here with the most basic greeting, you can You can already begin to see where his mind is and where it's going, where his thought life is. Now, after that greeting, he launches really into what is the main part of this letter and what takes our attention this morning as the main part of this sermon is this sentence which begins in verse 3, the main verb right here in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And right here we have his clear statement of thanksgiving. And, and we want to just take note. Because, you know, it gets honestly a little complex as you go down through the rest of the, uh, of the verse. And Paul begins to add all these subordinate ideas. But right here in verses 3 and 4, he has the, the, the kernel, if you will, of his thanksgiving. And we can take note three things, three observations when it comes to Paul's Thanksgiving, which I think will instruct you and I, particularly regarding the things for which we give thanks. I mean, it's remarkable when you, when you study the prayers of the Apostle Paul and the kinds of things he's thanking God for. It's remarkable the, the disparity of focus between what Paul prays for and what you and I pray for. But we're here today to hear from him and hear from him as one of the ministers of God's word. We're to hear from him as an inspired apostle. We're here today to understand why he thanked God the way he thanked God and how you and I can align ourselves with it. So we take note, first of all, in the opening verse, verse 3, the compulsion for Paul's thanksgiving. The compulsion for it. He says, we ought to do this. We, ought, we literally owe this. 
It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans um, 13. Oh, no man anything except to love, he says. It's, it's a word for indebtedness, a burden, an obligation that you feel to pay someone back for something. And these were, these were major obligations. You know, we don't feel it so much today because we tend to sort of uh, deal with debt in installments. And so we're making payments all the time. But when in the, in the ancient world, there were no installments. You loan someone something and it was expected back in lump sum. And so there was a much heavier sense of, of burden when it came to debt in the ancient world. And Paul says, I feel that. I feel that in terms of thanksgiving to God. And I feel it because of you. A sense of debt. A sense of obligation. Their lives had generated that. I mean, there were probably a million other things that Paul could have named that created a sense of obligation. You, you feel them every day, the air you breathe, the, the food you eat. You'll, you'll, you'll probably bow today after church at some meal and thank God for the food. All that stuff is certainly true. But here, his focus is on the impact of their life. Their life drove Paul to thanksgiving. It drove him to prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving. We might even say it drove him to worship. And wouldn't it be great if someone said that about you? I mean, wouldn't it be terrific that the things that someone sees in your life, they come up to you today or tomorrow or, or sometime this week or whatever, and they tell you, you know, your life causes me, it compels me to thank, to thank God. It, your life makes me a worshiper of God. The things that I see in you, I, I can't help myself. I feel like I, when I see you and then I have to turn over here and I feel a debt to God because of you. Wouldn't that be Wonderful. If someone said that about your life, that you pursue the kinds of things in your life, that you live your life in such a way that everyone around you is affected in such a way, that they walk away with a sense of debt to God because they encountered you. Such a wonderful expression of Paul, such an encouraging word that must have rung in their ears I just want you to know, he says, that your life compels me, makes me feel such a sense that I owe something to God to give him thanks because I met you. This is what Paul's saying. He was thankful. He was focused on what God was doing in their lives, the signs of God's grace working within them. And And that's what you see over and over again in Paul's prayers. He's so focused on what God's doing in someone's life. You you see this thanksgiving at work in his heart because he sees God at work in their lives. And you and I really ought to stop back, step back here at this point and ask ourselves, what is it that fills our prayers of thanksgiving? Assuming that you do, hopefully you do, you offer prayers of thanksgiving every day, but... What are you thanking God for? 
What do you most frequently thank God for? Is it, your, is it your ease of life? Are you thanking him for the comforts of your home? Are you thanking him for the riches of your job? Are, are you thanking him just for the joys of your, your children or whatever it might be? Are you thanking him for a promotion, a, a house, uh, whatever it might be? Maybe you're thanking him for a close friend. Or maybe you're thanking him because you had a friend who was sick and they got better. What do you give thanks for? Because whatever you're giving thanks for on a day in and day out basis, that really reflects what you value the most. Those are the most important things in your life. Whatever fills your prayer life with thanksgiving is the thing that fills your heart as your treasures. And what filled uh, Paul's prayer life? It was these signs of grace in other believers, particularly those he was ministering to. He loved to see God bringing about spiritual progress, spiritual maturity in those whom he ministered to. Now listen, a big part of that was because this was exactly what Paul had himself prayed for. He wasn't just thanking God after the fact. He had actually invested time asking God specifically for areas of growth in their life. He had asked for growth in their faith and their love, their spiritual stamina, their service to one another. But particularly as it relates to this passage, he had focused his prayer on their growth in faith and in love, which kind of takes us to a second observation in his prayer of thanksgiving, and that's the cause of the, of the prayer. The compulsion is there, but then he, he gives us the, the, clearly identifies what the cause is. He says, we ought to do this as it is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He names their growing faith and their increasing love as the main two reasons that compel him in this direction. And as I said, these were areas that he had prayed for. First Thessalonians, he says in, in verse 10, We pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul was already praying. He says, day and night. I was praying all the time because I understood that your your faith was lacking. And I understood that your faith had still some areas to grow. And, And then two verses later, Paul says, may the Lord also... Make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So he prayed for their faith to increase and he prayed for their love to increase. That was his focus, the focus of his prayer life. And so naturally, when the focus of your prayer is on those things, and then you begin to see tangible, credible evidence that those things are taking place, it's gonna, what's it going to do? It's going to create a compelling force in your heart to thank God. He had asked these things clearly from God and now God was answering him. He had, he had overflowing, uh, welling up within him, compelling, moving emotions to worship God and to thank God because of it. I mean, this is a dynamic prayer life. You understand that? This is a, this is a peak inside of a powerful prayer life. 
And so he outlines here exactly how all this is working. First of all, he says it's right because your faith is growing. This is not uh, referring to their, their initial faith. Uh, it's, it's obvious he's not talking about their, their confession of trust in Jesus Christ. They're not lacking in that because th- that faith is either there or it's not. God, when you come to God, if you don't know God... When you come to God, you don't have to build up your faith. You don't have to kind of um, add to it and add to it until you get to the place where you have enough faith in order to come to God. That's not the way that God saves you. If you're out there and you, you have seen this Christian thing and you are interested in it, but you don't think that you can be a Christian because you don't have the faith that you see in these other people, that's not what God's asking of you. He's not asking you to build up a certain amount of faith, increase your faith till you get to the point where you can finally be saved. The scripture says, by grace you've been saved. Through faith, and this is not of yourselves. Faith, just the size of a mustard seed, is all it takes. Scripture says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. That's all it takes. Just a simple faith, a simple confession of trust. You do that and God claims you as His own. All your sins are forgiven. And you are guaranteed eternal life with Him. That's the beauty of the gospel. Paul knew, though, that these people had that kind of faith. He saw the evidence of that already. What he's talking about is not that beginning. What he's talking about is what comes after that. What he's talking about is, is the way that the, your whole life uh, and your understanding of all the beauties and the wonders of Christ, how, how Jesus as Lord begins to permeate everything, which eventually happens. All the implications and all the areas of your day-to-day life, that's what Paul wanted to see them grow in. That's where he wanted to see them grow. He understood that he wanted to see a development, a fuller, fuller understanding of of how Christ frees them from guilt and shame, how he secures and anchors them in their life, how he liberates them from a fear of condemnation, how he frees them from a fear of man. He wanted them to understand how the cross of Christ guarantees for them love and assures them of an inheritance that cannot be taken away. He wanted them to grow in the way that they understand that they're more than conquerors in Christ. That, that even in bad circumstances, his love guarantees that God is working all things together for good. He wanted them to grow in their faith so that they could understand that conformity to Christ ought to be their highest pursuit and their greatest joy in all of life, their greatest treasure. He wanted them to understand the need to lay aside the old man and to clothe themselves in Christ daily and to understand the delight and the satisfaction that comes only as a life is lived in conformity to Him. And He wanted them to understand to the fullest extent that those who lose their life for the sake of Christ are the ones who truly find what life is all about. This is what Paul wanted them to grow in. 
And that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, His earnest desire was that they would progress in that process more and more as they went along. He He'd only been with them three months, you remember, then he was run out of town by a bunch of jealous Jews. And and he knew there was so much that they still needed to learn, so much they still needed to hear, so much they needed to be reminded about again and again and again. And so while he was forced to, to be separated from them in the way that he wanted to, while he was forced to be separated from them, his desire for them didn't wane. His yearning for their spiritual progress didn't die down. And so what he did was he turned his energies to prayer. And he began to pray specifically that they would grow in their faith. And now Timothy's made a second trip to Thessalonica. He spent some time with them. He was able to to fellowship with them and to hear the kinds of things that they're talking about. And he brings this report back to Paul and his heart is elated. Paul's heart is elated. He immediately recognizes that God is hearing his prayers and a, totally apart from anything that he did or could have done, God is at work in them and he owes a debt to God. He owes a debt to God. God's done exactly what he's asked for and now he can't help but give thanks. Thanks. And then Paul mentions not only their faith, but also their love, which again was something he had prayed for, that the Lord would increase their love for one another and it would abound. And now the report comes back from Timothy and that's exactly what has happened. He had told them in in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8, he says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another and that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout all of Macedonia, but... We urge you to do this more and more. In other words, Paul knew that this was part and parcel to being a Christian. He knew that it was inherent. God sheds his love abroad in our hearts immediately when we come to know Christ. And so as a matter of conscience, our heart and our yearning is to love other Christians. And God teaches you to do that and you need to listen to that in your heart. But even when you are, you might say, less sensitive to that, when you have less of a listening ear, when you are less aware of maybe the ways that you need to love, you cannot be settled in your heart. You can't look around and say, well, you know, I have people that I love. That can't be something you're satisfied with either. Paul says you need to do it more and more. There should never be a time when you say, you know, I think I've done enough. I think I've actually loved people enough, and I think I love enough people. Paul's prayer for them was to look for more ways. Search for even more ways to love. If you're like most people, you probably, you probably love already those who who uh, love you, your problem is not that you don't love others, it's that you're too selective. You selectively love people. You only love those who affirm you. You only love those who make you feel good. You, you, You still struggle to love those who frustrate you and challenge you, those people who are inconvenient for your life. 
But God has called you to love everyone, not reluctantly, but to love them the way Christ has loved you abundantly, increasingly. And so Paul says, look, I prayed for that. I prayed for that in you. And here, word has come back to him because he's gotten this report from Timothy that that's happening. There might have been deficiencies in love previously in this blessed church. But now there's evidence that their love is growing more and more. It's increasing more and more. It's a sign of their spiritual growth, a sign of the gospels at work in them, a sign that God was answering Paul's prayers. And he felt a compulsion to give back to God worship and thanksgiving because of what was happening. God God had caused this work in their life and he couldn't help himself. He gave glory to God because of them, which is sort of the consequence of all this. And our third observation from Paul's prayer life, and that is the consequence of this thanksgiving. He says in verse 4, therefore, as a result of all this work that that God's doing and, and I'm giving thanks for, because of all that, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. So the consequence, the result of really all this stuff and of Paul's thanksgiving is that he naturally boasts about them. He can't help himself. He's so eager to talk about God and so eager to talk about what God is doing. And since one of the places he most clearly sees God at work is in their lives, it only follows that when he talks about God, or for Paul to talk about God is for him to talk about them. It only follows that if he's going to talk about God, it's going to be about them. He kind of gives us a little taste of the content of what his boasting is here. He tells us right here what it is. He doesn't just repeat, you know, they're increasing in love and they're increasing in faith. Instead, he makes a connection with their steadfastness, which is interesting This is the way he defines their steadfastness. This summary description of this increasing faith and increasing love. It is evidence of a steadfastness. Another way to say that is, this isn't what you'd expect. You would expect the church that fell into affliction, a church that fell into trial, a church that fell into persecution, would not increase in faith and would not increase in love. They might shrink back, as a matter of fact. You might expect that people who get into some sort of persecution, some affliction, would become more fearful. They would become less trusting. They might begin to question God. You might think that they are less faithful, less focused on, uh, on, on others, more focused on themselves and their own self-protection, more prone to self-pity, less likely to be reaching out to others in love. You might expect that for people who are going through hard times and affliction, but But Paul says exactly the opposite. The evidence is that they are persevering, that they are enduring, that they're steadfast in the gospel by the fact that they're continuing to increase in faith and love. The testimony of Timothy was that the church, although it was still suffering persecution from these jealous Jews, the church was seeking God, was finding Christ more and more through it. 
These Jews who, who initially saw Paul come into Thessalonica and preach the gospel and saw a whole bunch of Gentiles, instead of coming to the synagogue and converting to Judaism, they started to read the Old Testament, but it wasn't Judaism they were seeking. It was Christianity. They became jealous and they ran Paul out of town. And then when they ran him out of town, they stayed behind and they continued to persecute the church. They did everything they could to attack the church. They tried to ruin them financially. They tried to ruin their reputations. But even in the midst of all that, Paul says that the church continued to increase in love and in faith so that in a word, they were remaining steadfast. They weren't letting the attacks of these Jews cause them to lose their faith in the message of the gospel. And they weren't letting the attacks of these Jews cause them to stop pursuing love. In fact, their love was increasing. And their faith was increasing. And all of this caused Paul to boast. All of it caused him where he couldn't help himself. He had to just talk about it. You may remember back in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, he said that the word of the Lord is sounded forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia. He says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, uh, turned to God, I should say, from idols to serve the living and true God. So we don't know why, but Paul says, look, I, I really wasn't even saying much about you. Maybe he was timid. Maybe he thought to talk about that work was to, but was to boast in himself and maybe bring attention to the way the Lord had used him. But he wasn't saying much, but a lot of people were talking. And he was just rejoicing in that. But now... Now, he says, I can't help myself. As he writes this letter, he's living in a port city of Corinth where people are coming and going. They're crossing a little isthmus uh, that that connects uh, lower uh, Achaia, lower Greece there, to the rest of Greece. And there's there's two little inlets where people would come in and dock their ships. And there's just a crossroads of the Mediterranean world. And, And so people are coming from all over the place. And Paul can't help himself. Every time he meets somebody, he just wants to, you know, hey, have you heard what's going on in Thessalonica? Have you heard what's going on in the lives of the people? Well, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you, they are abounding in their faith. This is what I hear. This is what has been told to me. They're increasing in their love. This is the report that I got back about them. And it just gushes forth. It's just natural. He is so excited to talk about the Lord, so excited to talk about what the Lord is doing. And every time he does it, he's making reference to them, but he's giving glory to God. It probably led to all kinds of opportunities, not only for personal worship, but to encourage other people, to strengthen their faith. It probably led to evangelistic opportunities. It certainly was leading to worship opportunities. You might think, wow, you know, I wish I had someone in my life that I was just so excited about, you know, that that I was so excited about what they were doing. I I was just overflowing in that way. I wish there was somebody in my life like that. I, I can think back, you know, this one guy I met, this one girl I met, and it was so neat to be around them and to hear what God was doing. And then I got excited and I told some other people, but, you know, I just wish there was someone who was like that. Well, let me ask you, 
Who are you praying for? What are you praying for in their life? Maybe you don't have those opportunities because you haven't been praying the right way. You haven't been praying specifically. Your prayers have been focused on all these material things and your own comforts and your own ease and your own health and your own wealth. Maybe if your prayers were like the Apostle Paul's, where he was seeing people around him and he was praying specifically, not generally, but very specifically for their spiritual progress. And that gave opportunity for him to see God using his prayers. And then when he saw those prayers being answered, he couldn't help himself. I mean, it, his prayer life mushroomed into this welling up kind of thanksgiving that was, that was irrepressible. Perhaps you're not seeing God working in the lives around you because you're not investing the time asking Him to. And consequently, you're missing out on the exhilaration of seeing God at work. The joy, the delight of being able to bring glory to God in this kind of a way to speak to others about the way that God is working because your prayers are misaligned. Your prayer life has become lethargic, listless, and mundane. No more excitement to it. Because you don't see prayers being answered. Or maybe you're not asking for anything significant at all. This is a peek into a man of prayer. This is a peek into his life and what generated him. When you read Paul saying, we prayed night and day, I believe it. I believe it. He pleaded with God to work in the lives of people all around him. And when he saw God answer, it just generated, it just stirred him to pray even more. I mean, I still, I I still am spurred on by God's answer to prayers 20 years ago. I mean, I mean, I can think back for specific things I prayed for in someone's life and specific ways that he worked, and I still give thanks to God for that. And it still stirs my prayer life. And it still generates in me enthusiasm and confidence and faith to keep praying for others. And you just, you just add to that more recent and more, uh, more visible in front of you every day kinds of growth. And, and you're talking about a dynamic, dynamic force. What an amazing church it would be if everyone was filled with this passion of the Apostle Paul, right? When we showed up here on Sunday and began to sing, to God be the glory, Darby wouldn't even need to play the music. It just burst out from us. I'm going to tell you that Paul's priorities were aligned with God's priorities. And his prayers were aligned the same way. And he felt a compulsion. A compulsion. A debt. Because he saw God giving so much. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer to our God.
Lord, we do give thanks. You give to us so much, even this morning, this word. A word that you have brought to us to remind us of how you invite us into prayer. You invite us to be partners together in what you're doing. Forgive us, Lord, where we have become lethargic and listless. I pray that you reinvigorate our prayer, not just for our loved ones, not just for our children, not just for our spouse and our our family, but just for all the people, people of our workplace, the people of our Sunday school class, the people of our community group, the people who sit next to us on a day-to-day basis and join us in fellowships and ministry. May we pray for them as we hear of needs. May we not just pray for their health and their prosperity. May we pray that their love would increase and their faith would abound and they would grow in their walk with you. May you give us spiritual priorities so that you would work mightily through us and it all would resound to your glory as we boast about you. It's to that end that we pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified. Amen.